Welcome to the Birthing Dad Bod- Podcast. This is a podcast about pregnancy, birth and early parenting. Yay! G'day, how's it going? I'm Steve from the Prepare Foundation. We are a registered charity that helps first-time dads make an awesome contribution at the birth of their child. This is a podcast where we get blokes talking about their experience to share their wisdom with other men who are about to go through the life-altering change that comes with first-time fatherhood. So let's hear about the transition of parenthood from a dad's perspective. Our next instalment is uh, with Ian, and he's from Sydney. Welcome, Ian. How are you doing? Very good. Yourself, Stephen? Uh, not too bad, mate. How's it all going in Sydney at the moment? Yeah, good. Yeah, just um, obviously a lovely weather at the moment, and yeah, just obviously kids at school and life's busy, so... But, uh, yeah, going well, no complaints. We're going to start with just a couple of questions to kind of get to know you a little bit better, and and yeah. uh, we're calling it a hot minute. Not Often it goes for a lot longer than that, but um, <laughs> maybe I should call it the hot five minutes. But, um, yeah, so we'll start with just some basics. So what kind of music are you listening to at the moment? You got a favourite song or something? Oh, a bit of everything. Um, like normally, yeah, I'd listen to sort of more sort of rock and, you know, classic sort of 80s and 90s sort of stuff, the era that I grew up with. But obviously with kids and stuff, you um, finish up, yeah, listening to what they're listening to. But, yeah, um, some blippy and... Uh... Yeah, I've got to say my kids are, my kids are very eclectic, um, you know, my eight-year-old listens, you know, she's doing dance, so she's got like Rihanna and things like that. And then, you know, Rory, yeah, one of my twins, he loves George Harrison and, yeah, just very, very eclectic. Um, nice. Whatever the kids want, we put it on in the car and it keeps them happy. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, whenever I hear a, a wiggle song these days, I kind of, you know, I find myself kind of ticking along because, you know, you hear it so often and they're so catchy, those tunes, right? And you just... They, and when you when you're at that stage when they're into the wiggles, that plays nonstop in your head sometimes, you know. And oh. we've graduated past that, thankfully. So, oh, good. Yeah. What, what yeah. age are your your little one? Uh, so the twins are five, and my eldest is eight. So yes, the twins. Uh, we we met at the the Multiple Birth Association conference. Is that or is that what you call it? Yeah. So the um the so the Amber Convention. Yeah. So the Australian Multiple Birth Association, their national convention. Yeah. So I, um yeah, it was great to meet you there and obviously get to uh, hear a little bit of your story and connect and um yeah hopefully yeah we can keep that going because yeah it was sort of a very interesting time in se- in the sense of that convention it was the first time we'd had any sort of focus on any stuff to do with dads so um to be able to have that um and have you there and talk about what your uh, what the prepare foundation does was really really excellent and i think it's triggered um some inquiries from some other clubs and some people around australia to want to talk to you as well about that so um and yeah getting dads more involved in that uh or understanding their uh their role in that space is yeah, uh, really that's, important so. well that's really good to know and um Maybe, look, because it's in context, let's actually kind of go into that right now because um, you've just mentioned it. The Australian uh, Multiple Births Association, you represent the kind of the father uh, fatherhood side of things there. Can you just kind of open, like tell us a little bit about that association for the listeners? Yeah, so, so I'm the dad support for our local multiple birth association, so the Northwest Sydney Multiple Birth Association, which covers the the Hills District, you know, sort of Cherrybrook over to Blacktown sort of area of, uh, of Sydney. And we're affiliated with the Australian Multiple Birth Association, which obviously 
by name is the National um, Overseeing uh, Authority, uh, I was going to say authority, but um, organisation. It's a volunteer organisation, completely volunteer, made up of parents of multiples. So multiples are twins, triplets, more, quins, quads. And so everybody who's on their local committee is a volunteer and then they can volunteer up to national level on the AMBA board. The whole goal of the Multiple Births Association is to support um, multiples families through their journey. So whether that be during pregnancy, birth, and then right through to school age and up into into your adult years. Um, they've done a lot of research into twins around the genetics of it, some of the dangers of it because there's different types of twin pregnancies. So you can have, um, and I always get this wrong <laughs> and I probably should know better, but you've got fraternal twins and identical twins. You can have single sac two placentas, one placenta, and they come with their own risks during pregnancy and birth. So I think it's the ones if they're in the same same placenta in the same sac, they can uh, it's a, consider a very high-risk pregnancy for those people and they can suffer, the twins can suffer something called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome um, where the blood from one twin will drain into the other and that can occur at around about 33, 34 weeks during the pregnancy. So any any person who has that type of pregnancy, they will induce them early, get the babies out so that they don't suffer the fate of losing one or both of their twins. So there is obviously a risk there, um, high chance of prematurity, in twin births, um, I think it's about 66 to 70% of all twin births will have some form of prematurity. Obviously, therefore, yeah, high rate of NICU stays. NICU is an acronym and it stands for Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. So this is where newborn babies go when they're premature or they're sick and they need specialist medical equipment and specialist medical staff to care for them with twin births and things like that. So those clubs are there really to support those families. So I do um, I do the dad support for the Multiple Births Association for our local one. Um, and my role with that is if any dads reach out to me and say, look, mate, I'm struggling, you know, this has happened, my kids have been born and we're struggling to adjust or, you know, through this or whatever, I'll have a chat to them. More so, I also do the expectant parent evening. So we run an expectant parent evening about once every six to eight weeks and then I do it with another lady. Um, and we talk about our experience, our experience as twin parents, and we just let them know just those sort of twin things that you need to know. What's a twin pram? How do you get one of them? What's it like to buy one? Uh, getting two car seats. How are you going to get them in the car? Feeding twins. You know, do you feed them one at a time? Do you try and feed them both together? Yeah, those trying to get twins to sleep. Kind of uh, level of dif- difficulty with two. Infants, I'm just changing them, you know, you're going from one to the other. Yeah, I don't know if if any of you listeners, motor racing, you know, I talk about like, you know, when changing a nappy, it's like double stacking in the pits. Like, you know, you're you're bringing both cars in at the same time and trying to get four wheels and tyres off. So, um, yeah, we... It, it's about to like also too, and I think traditionally for a lot of dads, you know, yep, wife's had a baby, great, you know, I'll change the odd nappy or I'll do this or I'll do that. And I say, if you've got twins, you can't afford to just say, yeah, well, I'll just continue on my life. I'll, I'll go to work. I'll keep playing golf. I'll, you know, go to footy and go to the pub and whatever else. You have to be present. You have to be there supporting your wife or partner. You have to be doing those physical things as a team because it is, 
you know, having one kid is like playing park footy, having twins is like playing state of origin. And for the triplet parents, I, I wouldn't even know. Like they, they, we've got a couple of triplet parents, you know, like you think about it, at least with twins, you've got two hands. Well, with triplets, like, yeah, you're doing the Chinese spinning plates. So, um, and that's what it's like, especially in the early days, like that's what it's like sometimes because you are, you're, you're feeding on a three or four hour schedule. You're trying to get naps in there. And, and we say to people, look, just, Keep your kids alive. Do what you do to do the kids. If the washing up doesn't get done, don't worry about it. If the laundry doesn't get put away, don't worry about it. Like just, you know, like just wash it, take it out of the basket and keep using it and just use it from the basket. Don't worry if it doesn't ever make it back to the drawer. Like, you know, just do what you can and, um, and, and, you know, be kind to yourself. So, um, and realize that, it, and that's the great thing about the twins group is that there's support out there. You can jump on the Facebook page. We've got a, we've got a closed Facebook page that people can jump on and ask questions and reach out for support and say, look, I'm, you know, or they can private message any of the, the committee members and say, look, I'm struggling with this or, you know, I need to get this or, you know, both my kids are sick. I can't make it to the shop. Someone will go, that's all right. I'll go do a shop for you and I'll drop it around your house or something or whatever, or we'll cook some meals for you or, you know, one of my kids is in NICU and one of the kids is home and how do I manage this or whatever. So we, we try and support our families as best we can um, through the, the local model. Well done, Ian, and so. congratulations and brilliant, uh, you know, kind of insights there into multiple children around in the house. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it, you know, the level of difficulty of uh, one is significant when you first cross that threshold, but um, two babies is, well, it's... Unimaginable, unimaginable for us that are, you know, have um, just single singletons. But um, we'll leave some details in the show notes for the Australian Multiple Births Association so that people can uh, get some more information if they so desire. Uh, let's go back to the hot five minute. Um, what's the first good movie that comes to mind? First good movie, Flying High. Flying High. All right. Uh, where was your last trip away? A last trip. <laughs> what do we call a trip? Uh, away for the weekend or maybe the day? Away for the weekend. Actually, away for the weekend, I can answer that. Um, it was our 10th wedding anniversary a few weeks ago. So I took my wife up to the Blue Mountains, which was a lovely, lovely weekend away for our 10th anniversary. So I have actually managed to achieve that with uh, with three children, which was quite good. And the kids were there? No, no, no. With the, kids, the kids went to the, the, the grandparents and had a, a – and, and so, yeah, it was nice that my wife and I, we, we went out to dinner and we, we looked at each other and we went, we can have a conversation. We, we don't have to – you know, cut up anybody's food or wipe anybody's face or whatever. We went to the movies and just, you know, it was great. The movies. Wow. That's like very extravagant, mate. I know. Okay. So if you and your wife could go away, so before kids, let's say, you could go and visit anywhere in the world and money was no issue. Where would you go? We we did have, my wife and I had this thing we said before kids, if we didn't ever finish up having kids, um, we'd save all our money up and we'd follow the Formula One around the world for a year because you get a world tour out of it. You get to go to most of Europe and Middle East and America and, you know, South America and, you know, so we said we would just follow the Formula One for a year and, you know, race every two or three weeks. So in the meantime, go and tour around and do the touristy things and then just go up and watch the races and, yeah, keep going. So that was our... That was our dream if we never had kids. You can invite anyone to dinner. Who is it and what would you cook them? Live or dead? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyone. Shane Warne. Okay. Nice. What would you cook him? He did like lasagna and I can cook a pretty good lasagna. If not, I'd have to say probably 
Yeah, probably a really nice roast or something like that, like a roast lamb. And ask him about his um, his days in his heyday. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, what would you like to overhear your twenty year old saying about you? I know you don't have a twenty four a twenty year old at the moment, but let's say in the future you kind of overhear them on the phone to their friends. What are they saying about you? What would you like to hear? Dad was kind to me. Yeah, nice. All right, last question. If you were ever going to write a book, what would it be about? Ooh. Actually, this is – I shouldn't give this away. I'll give away the title of my book. I actually thought years ago, because I'm not famous, obviously, So, um, but I thought if I ever wrote like a an autobiography and I'd call it Memoirs of an Ordinary Man. Nice. All right. That's good. good way to – to end the, the hot five minutes. All right, so uh, let's get into a little bit of, you know, uh, why we're here. Uh, I wanted to just start out by asking you about your own father and, you know, just some general kind of background to your own dad and what he kind of passed on to you, that kind of thing. Yeah, like that. Um, so my dad, what is he now, mid-70s, so he was born late 40s, late 1940s, so he's typical of that era post-war baby in Australia, um, you know, he he was a good dad, um, you know, obviously worked hard. He worked to work every day and provided for us. We didn't have a, you know, a privileged childhood by any means, but we never went without. Um, and he just instilled, like, he was just one of those dads, you know, he instilled those values, hard work, and, you know, you don't get anything by not doing it yourself and you you know, you have like no no one's going to give you anything, so you've got to go out and get it and work for it and yeah, don't be shy of hard work and don't be shy of, you know, having a go. Like I think that was the other thing too. Like he, um, he's like, you know, you want to have a go at something? Have a go at it. But he goes, don't do not do it half-hearted. Like do, give it give it your all, give it 100% and if it doesn't come off, well, it doesn't come off. But at least you can say you had a go. And yeah, he was just a good sort of traditional dad, you know, took us, like you, you look back now and you go, geez, he sacrificed a lot. Like he sacrificed his interests and, and his time so that, you know, we, he could take us to sport and he could, you know, he'd drop us off for sport on the weekend and, you know, he'd take us bike riding, he'd take us to swimming and he'd take us on a holiday. Like, you know, he took his Christmas holidays every year so he could take us away on a family holiday and give us those memories and, um, and give us and, – and, you know, you look back now as an adult and I think about the memories I want to create with my children and, you know, I took my daughter down the, down the south coast – for a little camping trip for a couple of days and, you know, she's like, oh, why are we doing this? I said, well, this is what I did when I was a kid. This is where dad, this is where pop took me and and my sister and and, and I loved it. I, You know, they're, they're the happiest memories of my childhood are those Christmas holidays and then you realise, well, dad took three weeks off work so that we could have that, you know, and and I guess if you sum him up, like that's him, like, you know, he's a, he just, he did what it, you know, he did those things for us, like for, for the kids. And, you know, he might not have said it in so many words in, you know, in a sort of a modern dad sense, um, you know, um, but he he did it by his actions, I think would be probably the best way to sum it up. And and, and by example, leading by example, yeah. Yeah, which is the best you can do. And, and actually, yeah, it's the only thing you can do. Uh, to actually, uh, you know, affect change in your, in your offspring, really, uh, because they, they will follow what you're doing rather than what you're saying sometimes, all the time, actually. Uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, cool. Um, all right. So that was a pretty positive frame uh, of your dad. Was, was there anything kind of, 
that you won't be uh, the kind of bringing into your your own fathering style? Like, is there anything you kind of go, ah, I'm not going to repeat that, Dad? Yeah, look, like I always said, Dad was probably typical of his era in terms of that. So, you know, like discipline was obviously fairly high and, you know, we had a cane above the door and in the kitchen and if you mucked up, you copped a, a crack across the back of the thigh. Um, and, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, that wasn't frowned upon. I probably certainly not saying I wouldn't, you know, if my child misbehaved, whether I give him a smack, but I certainly won't be using a cane. Um, and as I said, I probably only copped it two or three times in my life, but it's made an impact. And I certainly remember not to do those things again. So I wouldn't criticize him for it, but probably obviously in this day and age, you try and find better ways to, to do that. And I try to, and probably not something that my father, not, I wouldn't say not do something that he did do, but I'd rather do something that he didn't do. And as I said, I'll probably try to, communicate with my kids a bit more, tell them I love them, tell them I'm proud of them a lot um, and reassure them and give them confidence in that. And as I said, that's no criticism of, of my dad. He he did what he was thought was right at the time and from his upbringing and how he was raised and how that, led, and how that um, you know, fed into his his idea of being a father and, and the society it was at the time. And as I said, I think in 40 years, it's moved a long way. And yeah, so as I said, probably not, I said, there was no real negatives there, but as I said, it'd be more just, as I said, moving with, with the times and just, and just changing that style slightly. But yeah. Let's move on to like preconception. Were all, all of the pregnancies planned? Yeah. So, yeah. So our first daughter, um, yeah, my wife and I sat down and, you know, it was a, uh, a decision for us, like we owned our house and, you know, you know, the bank owned our house, but, you know, we were in a comfortable position financially. We had a stable environment. Um, we both had good jobs. And, you know, obviously for my wife too, like her decision, if she has a child and that obviously affects her career and things like that. So all those things were discussed. Um, we come from sort of pretty similar families in the sense of our values and our, and uh, what we want. So there was never a big, you know, like discord about you know how we we're going to raise children or anything like that and but yeah we definitely had those talks and yes we will start trying for children and um yeah our first child sort of yeah textbook pregnancy for for one of better phrase fairly easily um you know conceived and everything um yeah my wife had a bit of morning sickness there for well, sort of six to eight weeks which obviously wasn't pleasant for her but um yeah got through natural birth um great kid you know, slept through the night after 10 weeks, um, fed well, grew up well, no health issues, just um, Evelyn, yeah, her first one. Yeah, like as I said, for one of a better phrase textbook was just awesome. Yeah, she was that uh, one that lulled us into that false sense of security that, hey, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, maybe go into the next story yeah, so, about the pregnancy there. So, yeah, we were um, – and I will say, like, I mean, to be honest, like, so Steph came out of the – Evelyn's um, after like afterwards, and um, you know had those you know baby blues, and you know I won't call it postnatal depression or anything like that. But obviously there was a time there where she wasn't a hundred percent, and and in that, so we did discuss when we talked about having a second child whether that was an issue. And as I said, my wife being comfortable with that and understanding it, and I think because we'd been through it the first time we were aware of it and sort of like, hey, this could be a possibility and just understanding the extra workload, you know, what a, what a second child would do. Um, so, yeah, we, we discussed those things. When you say baby blues, just um, kind of describe that in a sense and, and like how long it lasted. Um, 
going back a long time. I'm going back eight years and going rewinding over back stuff. Um, just as it's probably a question best answered by my wife at the, for, from her perspective, but yeah, just as she felt, I think at the time, just maybe a change in identity. Like for her, like I said, she's been, she has quite a professional career and she's identified by that and her job and that was her identity. And then she was no longer that person. Like she still kept her job, but she went back part time and, you know, it wasn't as sort of high flying as what it had been. And I think there was a loss of identity there for her in the sense of she was now a mum. And she's like, wow, that's not who I was planning on being. Um, I was planning on being this person who was going with the career and sort of soaring. And when she went to go back to work and that didn't, those two things didn't gel um, in the sense that her job was like, well, you're only working part-time, so we're not going to give you these opportunities and we're not going to, you know, you know, you're not going to travel as much and you're not going to do this. And she's like, oh, okay. And yeah, so I think for her, there was a, there was a bit of a loss of identity there and, her understanding that, you know, what being a mum was like and what that would look like to for her and the perception of the outside world. So, yeah, yeah it's not uncommon for professional women to actually experience yeah. uh, some form of loss there mm. because, uh, you know, it's it is it is actually a, a a well known fact that when women leave the workforce to have a child, they do get left behind. And I mean, I think that that's something that. This work that I'm doing is all about trying to, you know, perhaps balance our parenting and working lives uh, together. I think, you know, and I think that some, there is, there is definitely movement in that space, uh, you know, towards equality in the workforce and dads. And that's part of the, like I say, this work of getting dads upskilled so that they are more capable of kind of taking on those roles. And, and dads want it as well. 100%. In my experience. Yeah. 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 So, and as I said, it wasn't, I don't know, I'm not, you know, no fault on her workplace and no fault on her or anything like that. It was just one of those things that I think you, you talk to everybody about, you know, what's it like having a child and what's it like this? And everyone tells you about, oh, you know, the sleeplessness and the feeding and the spews and all that sort of stuff. But they don't talk about that sort of real stuff. And I had one mate and he said to me, he goes, beware of it. He goes, just beware of the baby blues. And he, to this day, if I like his kids are a bit older than me, and if I say to him, Oh, Scotty, you know, what do you think of this? or da da da, he will give me the no BS, dead honest advice and go, Mate, that's that's effed. Like, you know, don't do that. Or I did this, blah, blah, blah. And he was the only one who was dead honest with me and said, Just be aware of the baby blues. He goes, It might not happen, it might happen, but just be aware of it. And, yeah, and, 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 that, and that visibility of your partner and realizing there's already a massive change there physically, hormonally, everything else like that. But just be aware that as that progresses, whether they transfer back to the person that they were and, yeah. What kind of conversations were you having to realize that it wasn't postnatal depression or it's normally a timescale thing? Yeah, I think, as I said, I think it was probably more because it was a bit later on. It was more about when... Steph went to go back to work and, and that, that's sort of when it occurred. And I said it was more probably around that identity issue and, and things like that. And to be honest, probably it wasn't until after we had the twins and Steph did actually suffer from some postnatal depression that we realized the difference in the two. So it's sort of like, you know, if you say to a normal, like, I'll say normal person, I shouldn't say normal person, but a person say who hasn't had children and they say, what's the difference between feeling sad and what's the feeling difference between feeling depressed? But you can wake up and feel sad and go, oh, today's a crap day and I don't want to do anything. But by lunchtime, you know, you've got yourself out of bed and you've had a shower and you've had some lunch. Well, if you've got depression, you're not getting out of bed. Like that's 
that's the difference. So, yeah, as I said, it wasn't until probably down the track and you actually saw the aftermath of having the twins that we went, oh, that actually wasn't as bad as what we thought it was. So, Yeah, and that in hindsight you can call it baby blues now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to just back up there a little bit uh, to kind of – uh, make a point around you said you've got Scotty to is it Scotty? yeah Matterbond Scott yeah, yeah, yeah like a journeyman like a father that went before you and you, you you're sharing with him you're asking him stuff I, I really I, I think that's a fabulous kind of model for you know any dad mm. if there's some other bloke around you know try and get get information from him as much as possible because uh, I think it's really important that dads do start to share with each other what what you know what's going on for us and and get that advice. I think that's the next level of you know the evolution of fatherhood or the dad evolution, and what I call it. Yeah, you know? and and you know what I think we do it like it was an organic thing. It wasn't like I, I made a point of saying oh I got to ring Scotty like and make sure I you know have this conversation with. Him. I think we just had him and his wife over for dinner and we were just having a chat and and things and. And we just said, you know, like, what do you think? And knowing that that he was that him and his wife are those type of people that would go, yeah, this is it, mate. Like, we're not going to sugarcoat it. This is what it is. As I said, there's been a couple of times where I've gone, and I've got other mates who I do it to as well. But mainly, yeah, I'll go, oh, I'm a bit sort of stuck here. I'll just text Scotty and just say, hey, mate, what do you think of this? Or have a chat to him or whatever. Or yeah, we'll, we'll talk about things. And we go away. Generally, go away once a year on a golf trip together, and we'll spend that you know, car ride down chatting about our kids and that'll just, as I said, it'll just organically lead to a conversation where we talk about our kids and as I said, his kids are sort of in high school now. So he's giving me that perspective of what it's like to have teenagers and, and, the, and the things they go through and I'm sort of mentally banking those those little gems that he's giving me or or just going, dear God, I'm, I'm moving to a remote island. <laughs> yeah, it never stops. Oh, yeah. my God, even in, in in teenager years. 100%. Yeah. And that's it. Like, there isn't, there isn't a – I always say, like, you know, like when my daughter was born and I go, you go from not being a parent to being a parent and then you don't have a day off for 18 years. So <laughs> – that's it. Like there is no, there is just, you start and then that's it. Like, yeah. And there's always a challenge. There is always a challenge whether, you know, and, and that's what I was saying before about the multiple births association, you know, it's not just for babies and things like that. There's always, you know, we've just sent our twins off to kindergarten. Do you put them in the same class? Do you put them in separate classes? Do you do like, you know, how do you manage that? And someone's gone before you, someone's answered that question. Someone's got that data that tells you or informs you, oh, well, this worked for me or this didn't work for me. And that's what's great about being in that community and in that space is that they can, they can feed that back to you and, and you can then make an informed decision out of, um, out of that, out of that information that you can get from like, from people in a like situation. So are they in different classes or the same? They're in different classes. So boy-girl boy, twins, they're going to have their own group of friends and stuff, but um, we find that Rory tends to be the leader and he'll go, I'll try this first. Like I'll just run headlong into that brick wall and see if it hurts. Uh, where Georgie sits back and goes, I'm going to see what happens here. He hits the brick wall and she goes, huh, that hurts. I'm not going to do that. Or, you know, and it went right through like from when they were babies right through. He would he would try to stand up first. He would try to roll over first. He tried to walk first. He tried to eat solids first. And Georgie would just sit back and go, what are you doing, you idiot? And he's making a mess of it or he's fallen over or whatever. And then about a week later, she'd just do it perfectly. She'd just stand up. She just stood up. Like I remember when she stood up she, for the first time, she just stood up. 
and just went, got it perfect because I've been watching him. I've been watching him for the last week fall on your backside and and he and and we thought but that's led to now where she's going, Oh, you can do that for me. You can do that. Like she just goes, Oh, Rory will do that for me. And we're like, if that's in a classroom situation and the teacher says, Georgie, what's this answer? Well, Rory's gonna stick his hand up and go, Yeah, two plus two is four. Like he'll jump in and we're like, Well, you've got a and I don't want to, yeah, like they've, they've got to, yeah, she's got to be able to do stuff for herself. He's got to be able to do stuff for himself. But also to, I don't want them to go through life identified as twins. I want them to go through identified as Rory and Georgina. They're individual people. They've got individual personalities. They can grow up as individuals. Yeah, and I'm certain that they would want that too. So I think that's, you know, that's a, a good plan. Okay, d- did you want to talk about their pregnancy? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, what you were saying before about yeah, sort of planned and everything. We had Evelyn. She was about two, and we're like, do we? Don't we have a sibling for them or not? Um, and we figured it was a pretty sort of. Both my parents are only children. They grow up as only children. So, and I and we both have siblings. And we said, look, we'd, we obviously want to give Evelyn that opportunity of having a sibling. Um, so yeah, once again, tried fairly easily. Fell pregnant. Um, and then Steph, oh, we knew she was pregnant, and yeah, we in about six week mark, we um, we all got sick. We all got a, a, a stomach bug, and we're like, "Oh, this is great!" You know, da da da. Anyway, I got better, Evelyn got better, and Steph didn't, and she kept being sick and kept being sick. And we're like, "Oh, it's morning sickness again!" We're like, "Oh no!" So uh, took her to the doctor. Um, actually, my mother-in-law took it to the doctor because I couldn't get it. I was still sort of recovering myself. And then the doctor goes, you need to go to hospital. You don't have enough fluid in you. Um, so whizzed her up to the sand and um, walked in and they sort of tried to, I remember they tried to put a uh, cannula in a hand and Steph was so dehydrated she couldn't form a fist so that they could get the cannula in a hand. Um, her knuckles hurt so much from being so dehydrated from being sick for a week. So like, right, oh, we're going to admit you. So they admitted her into the maternity ward. Um, we hadn't met our obstetrician at this stage. We'd rung him and booked him, but we had never met him. And um, so he came in it was the first day or second. I think we went up in the afternoon and then they rang him and said that we're worried about one of your patients and he came in. And I'll never forget, he walked in, looked at Steph and said, you look like shit, my dear. And she goes, I feel like shit, doc. And he goes, right. He goes, um, this is pretty severe morning sickness that you've got. He goes, we're going to get you on some medication, try and sort you out, even you out. But I want to do an ultrasound tomorrow. Um, he goes, look, he goes, the reason you'd be so sick, he goes, uh, it's an enlarged placenta. It's an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy is one where a fertilised egg implants and grows outside of the uterus. It's a such and such syndrome, which I can't even remember the name of, or it's twins. And I went, oh, we don't have any twins in the family. Like, it's not that. And so my thoughts race to, we're going to lose this pregnancy. This is going to be a, a failed pregnancy. And we'd never had that before. We'd never had any sort of loss or, or failure in pregnancy or anything like that. And I remember walking out of the hospital that night, out to the car park, and I just had tears streaming down my face, just thinking, what have I done to my wife? Like, what have I done? Um, what have I put her through? You know, like she's she can't even lift her head off the bed. She's so sick. And um, I just felt so guilty for like, you know, like feeling like I'd made it happen or whatever. So anyway, went went home and 
went in the next day and uh, they're like, oh, we need you to go down to ultrasound. And Steph's like, I can't get out of bed. Like, So we had to wheel the bed through the hospital all the way down to the ultrasound, which is like across the other side of the hospital. So it was like something like that to get smart, like going down all these corridors and everything. And eventually we get down to the ultrasound and the woman's like, oh, you need to transfer onto the bed. And Steph's like, I can't get up. Like, I'm that sick. And she's like, Okay, so I can't remember if we moved or they just did it in the bed. I think they might have just done it in the bed. And anyway, they're like, we need to drink some water. And Steph's like drinking water and just throwing it straight back up again. Um, so like, okay, well, we'll just go for the ultrasound. And they did it and she's scanning back and forth. And I see the dot on the screen and then I see a second dot on the screen on the other side. And I'm going, what? Two dot? Like, what am I looking at? And then she just, the sonographer just goes, big smile across her face and she goes well no way you're so sick you've got double the hormones you're having twins and <laughs> Steph just looked at me and I'm grinning like a an idiot with tears running down my face she goes what are you so bloody happy about and I said well it's not the alternative like it's good news like you know this is great like we've got a healthy pregnancy it's not all those other things that the obstetrician mentioned we're not going to lose these babies and um she's like well but I think Steph was just feeling so sick. She's like, okay, whatever. Like, you know, there was, you know, a few words of sort of, oh shit, like, what are we going to do? I'm like, we'll just, we'll just work it out. We're a team. We'll just work it out, you know, like, um, so yeah, so Steph spent a week in hospital, um, on a drip with four hourly intervals of medication to try and even her out. Um, so she was able to come back home, which she did. And then she stayed on that medication for, I think it was about, yes, until oh, she was probably about 14, 16 weeks pregnant. So she was on there for sort of a good eight to eight to 10 weeks um, on the medication to stop her from being sick. And then, um, yeah, just kept going back, getting scans. Everything was everything was tracking fine. Um, and then we got to the 20-week scan and um, went in – and it was funny. So our obstetrician, he didn't do his own scanning. He'd send you to um, an ultrasound center, which was right next door to his rooms. And so we, we'd go in and get the ultrasound and the girl's going along. And she's look, do you want to know if it's a boy, like what you're having, boy, girl, boy, boy, girl, girl. We said, yeah, yeah, like first kid was a surprise, but let's twins are enough of a surprise. Let's find out. And she's like, well, I'm 95% sure you're having a boy and a girl. Fantastic. Happy days. Like, great. Three kids, one of each. How how great! So um, all good. Left, and it was that afternoon. Steph got a phone call, and they're like, "Oh, can you just come back in? We just didn't get enough pictures of the boy um, because of the twin pregnancy. The way they're in the stomach, you know, sometimes they're shielded, and the ultrasound can't get them. We just need to come back in and just confirm some some images." Okay, no worries, fine. We'll come back in tomorrow. So we went back in the next day, and. Um, I remember we took our daughter with us because we just didn't have babysitting. It was sort of a last-minute thing. So Evelyn was at my feet and was sitting in there and the same sonographer's going over the thing and she's been quite detailed and quite slow and this and that. And then she calls in this doctor, this female doctor, and they're chatting away and they're talking about, you know, posterior this and anterior that and blah, 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 and all these medical terms. And I just stopped and I said, can you two start talking like we're actually in the room and we exist? And they looked at it and Doc said, I'm really sorry. She goes, I, I didn't mean to. She goes, I just wanted to confirm what this is. But she goes, it looks like your boy has a mass in his chest. She goes, I think it's a congenital diaphragmatic hernia and his bowel has floated up into his chest. And she showed me the image. And you could see on his right side, he had a transparent lung. And on the left side, it was more solid. And she goes, that's his bowel. I'm like, how does your bowel get in your chest? 
and she goes, well, his diaphragm, which sits under your lungs, it's a muscle. It hasn't formed correctly. It hasn't grown. It's left a hole. And that's um, that's allowed the bowel to float up and it's pushed his lung and his heart across. And I'm like, okay. And, like, the world was just, like, caving in underneath me. Like, I'm like, what? Like, Steph and I are looking at each other going, what does this mean? And she's like, look, I need to confirm it because either this congenital diaphragmatic hernia or it's a such and such something else. And I was like, yeah, okay. overnight as well. And she goes, I need to go for an MRI tomorrow. Okay, and if you've ever tried to book in for an MRI in Sydney, that's not a feasible thing overnight, especially for a pregnant woman. So um, they rang around. They actually made the phone calls for us and said, you've got to go up to Hornsby. This is the place you've got to go. They'll do it. So the next morning, like, and I'm just ringing work going, I'm just not coming in. I'm just not coming into work. And they're like, yeah, mate, no worries. Off you go. So, yeah, went up. They did the MRI. They confirmed it was congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And so we went back to our, our obstetrician, um, Bevan, and then sort of said, oh, you know, what's the story? And he goes, well, oh, I can no longer be your obstetrician. Um, he goes, your child's going to have to be delivered at Westmead Hospital. Um, I don't deliver there, so I can't do it. And he goes, and this is, he goes, not that it's outside my scope because I don't deal with it regularly. He said, so the doctor that actually diagnosed it next door, Indica, she's going to be your doctor. She's the head of fetal medicine at Westmead, Children, uh, Westmead Hospital. And we're like, uh, okay, and we had a great relationship with, with our obstetrician. He was a fantastic obstetrician, and we felt like he was like sort of breaking up with us, and we, we got a bit sad about that. And he goes, "Look, you, you're in good hands. You're in the best hands possible. She's a gun." So yeah, we then met with her, and she said, "Look, this is the situation. I'm going to monitor you now. It's going to be pretty much every two weeks. You'll come in. We'll scan." She goes, "I'm going to put together a team of professors and doctors to look after your children." I'm certainly your boy. Um, we'll put his case to the team. There'll be a cardiothoracic surgeon that'll put their hand up and want to do the job. And then he will then put a team of nurses and doctors together to stay with you right throughout your pregnancy. Soon after delivery, we'll do the surgery and we'll look after him. And I should say, I should backtrack in this. So in that process where I said about the, the ultrasound, that was a, I think it was a Thursday. And then we had the MRI on the Friday. So we had a whole weekend to wait to go back on the Monday. And if I give a tip to anyone, do not Google a medical term and try and work out whether it's good or bad. Googling congenital diaphragmatic hernia is bad because the first thing that comes up is 50-50 mortality. So they're saying to you, yeah, worldwide, if your child's got this, they've got a 50% chance they're going to die. That figure, that figure just, that figure just stuck in my head. Um, and, so that entire weekend, like I, I don't even remember not crying that weekend. Like, yeah, just not knowing once again what was going to happen. But as I said, once we started talking to the professionals and stuff, um, they did actually say, I think at one point, whether we wanted to terminate him. And we said, well, how? How do you terminate one and not the other? And they said, well, you've got two embryo, like two placentas. So you could, t-. and we said, no, nah, no, nah, that's just not, because the risk then to the girl, which was Georgina, was just way too high. Because um, I'm like, well, we'd rather have something than nothing, and you know, let's just write it out. Like, let's just see what happens. So, yeah, over that period, so from 20 weeks, it was just just appointment after appointment, um, meeting with the doctors, meeting with the surgeons, getting a tour of the Grace Ward at the Children's Hospital to see what that would be like, what it would be like to have a child in NICU, um, which was fantastic. And they take you around with a social worker and you see these tiny little, you know, one and a half, two kilo babies and they're wired up and they've got tubes coming out of them and they've got all sorts of different things wrong with, wrong with them. 
but there's these amazing doctors and nurses looking after them 24-7. They've got the best technology. They've got everything going there. And I remember walking around and sort of keeping a brave face and they took us back to this room and um, they were going to play us a sort of a video and I just burst into tears. I just was an absolute mess. The woman was like, it's okay. Like she goes, that's perfectly natural. And all I could do was visualize what's this going to look like in 10 weeks time when I'm here? How's this going to feel? And just interspersed with that, like going to work and then Probably the biggest mistake in that period that I made, um, so I obviously told my work and they were fantastic about it. And they said, yeah, mate, like, no worries. Like, you need days off, whatever. Like, you know, we'll work it out. Just work around it. Um, I told my parents. I told my sister. And I didn't tell anybody else. We told our immediate families. We told our respective immediate supervisors at work. And we left it at that. Looking back, that was a mistake because I closed the doors. I went into my armadillo shell and... When I'm I'm the dad, I'm the husband, I'm going to protect my wife, I'm going to sort this out, I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to be the rock and I'm going to do everything. And I couldn't do it. And, you know, I remember one day I was driving to work one day and I was on the phone to my mum and my mum's lovely. Like, she's, she's just one of these people in life that sort of like, oh, yeah, it'll be fine, dear, it'll be fine. And, like, if you give her a minor problem, she'll worry the world over it. But if you give her a major problem, she just goes, oh, okay, darling, no worries, and just sort of just blanks it. And I remember just losing it at my mum on the phone, just going, mum, you do not effing understand. I said, I could lose my son here. I said, my son could die. Do you understand what that means? And she just, yeah, like it was that moment I realised, I'm like, I'm bottling all this up. I am, you know, I, you know, it's, yeah, saying sort of, I was in the car one day and I was listening to some music and I just heard this song and I thought, oh, I wonder if I could play that at his funeral. And I was just like, but that's where my mind was going to. That's where, because as I said, the first thing I did was Google it and you see this 50-50 mortality rate. What you don't actually see is that's a worldwide figure. The doctors in Australia are the best in the world and the mortality rate's actually more like 80-20 or 90, 90, 10, like they've they, they got far better outcomes in Australia because obviously we've got world-class healthcare, which costs nothing. We, as a, as a society, value that. And so, yeah, so places like Australia and Canada and Switzerland and all these places, they have these great outcomes. It was an average, you know, so it's globalised average. So, um, so, yeah, so as I said, it, that period of time, as I said, if I look back now, one thing I would have done was reached out because what finished up happening was, and ironically, as I spoke about my mate Scott before, I, once the twins were born, I put this post up on Facebook and just sort of just bleh, just put everything out there on Facebook and said, look, I'm going to be offline for a while, but this is what's going on. Rory's been born. Georgie's been born. This is what's wrong with Rory. He's going to need to have surgery. It's going to be a long road to recovery, blah, blah, blah. If I don't answer my phone, if I don't get back to my text, I'm not being rude. I just, this is the way the world is. And Scott rang me, like he texted me and stuff, but he rang me and I said, oh, hey, mate, how you going? And he goes, and he's a firefighter. He goes, there's a guy on my platoon who his son went through that 18 months ago. And I went, oh. And he goes, and he's the happiest, healthiest little 18-month-year-old you've ever seen. He bounces around like Tigger and um, here's Matt's number, give him a call. 
and he just literally handed over his mate's phone number and said, give him a call. And at the time, I think I was a little bit sort of caught up in it, but we, I did finish up giving him a call sort of shortly afterwards, sort of, you know, once Rory was sort of one or two weeks old and I've spent about an hour on the phone with him and he just reassured me that everything was going to be okay. He goes, mate, we had this. He goes, we had Ollie. He was fine. He's had it. He's now thriving. You wouldn't know. He goes, you just wouldn't even know he's had it. Apart from the scar, you just would not know. And I'm like, shit, I wish I knew this 10 weeks ago. And that's why I say, like, you can bottle everything up. You can block everything away. But it was to my detriment because if I'd known that during the pregnancy, I wouldn't have stressed and compressed and, and done everything that I did to myself. And obviously then externally to Steph and to my parents and everything else like that because I was like living this, you know, on edge. I would have been a lot better person. I would have been thinking a lot clearer and, you know, looking back now going, oh, geez, I wish, you know, I hadn't have had that or I wish I had that reassurance that, hey, there's a better chance that everything's going to be okay. So, yeah. Look, that's a perfect example, isn't it, of dads or men bottling up stuff to their own detriment and just kind of going, you know what, I'm tough enough and I can handle it. And every single day, you know, men are killing themselves because they're, they're saying they can handle it or, you know, they're going through these issues and problems that right next door to them, there's someone who might be going through the same. And we just, you know, we need to stop that kind of bottling up of our emotional landscape because at the end of the day, it's harming us. And that's a perfect example of, you know, that harming. And, And that's it. Look, I mean, I'm not a huge social media user in the sense of, you know, like I don't, I don't broadcast my life on social media or anything like that. And it was one of the very few times that I did put up something there quite personal about my life, but the reaction that it got from my friends and because I don't normally put that stuff out there because I don't normally, it got such an, a massive reaction from my friends because they're like, if Ian's put this out there, this has to be huge for him. This has to be. So they all rallied around me. I had, I had mates that I hadn't worked with for three or four years. You know, they went out and they bought us four weeks worth of U-foods deliveries. So we come home and there's a box of U-foods on the doorstep. Don't have to cook. Don't have to worry about getting dinner. There it is, ready to go. You know, just these little kind of gestures that by, you know, and I didn't ask for it or anything like that, but they're like, okay, well, there's no point buying your booties. There's no point buying your jumpsuits. There's no point buying your nappies or whatever because your kids are in hospital. But this is something really practical that we can do as a bunch of friends. We can kick in 20 bucks each and we can sort your life or a portion of your life for the next couple of weeks for you so you can concentrate on spending time at the hospital and getting your kids better. And and it, as I said, it's as you said, reaching out or putting it like, you know, as I said, I don't think people should be broadcasting their every day on, on Facebook or Instagram or whatever and saying, oh, look at the poached eggs I had for breakfast, you know, but when you do need help, when you do need something serious, put it out there. As I said, someone's been through it. Someone's walked that track before you and they'll say, mate, don't take the left turn down there, go this way. And I really think it's a, it's a valuable, that's probably in terms of my learnings or or something that I take out of it now when I say to people, I go, look, if you do have it, even you just got a twin pregnancy or a triplet pregnancy or whatever it is, tell your friends. You never know who in your circle of friends, like friend of friend, might be another twin parent. We had the exact same thing with us with the twins. My sister worked with a woman in the same, they're both school teachers, worked in the same department as her. And she goes, oh, yeah, she's a member of the Northwest Sydney Multiple Birth Association. Here's the pamphlet. Give her a call. Fantastic. You know, so as I said, there's those supports and and help. Like people are always wanting to help you. People's natural default is to want to help. Yeah, there are networks just waiting to be enabled. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, mate, were they born by a planned cesarean? Then, 
so we had a plan cesarean. We had a plan cesarean at 37 weeks. So right throughout the whole thing, they said right in the, the doctor Indica, she's like, I won't let them go past 37 weeks. But she said, the thing we have to have is Rory has to be two kilos. To perform surgery on him, the doctor will want him ideally to be two kilos to be able to survive the surgery. I'm like, okay, so obviously, so then she put Steph on a regime of medication because what happens with a, a child with um, any sort of thoracic issue when they're in the embryo, they don't process the am- amniotic fluid correctly. So they normally like process it and it stays at sort of a level in there. Rory's sack was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. He was getting, because the body was going, oh, he's in drama. He's got a drama there. We need to protect him. So they were making Steph's body was making this huge sack around him, filling it with fluid, filling it with fluid, and pushing Georgie over to one side. <laughs> but what that does is obviously triggers in Steph's body saying, Well, you're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You need to give birth. And the doctor's going, No, 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 don't go giving birth. I need to hang you on as long as possible. So she was giving Steph medication to trick her body to say, Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So yeah, so we got to so we had a plan Caesar. 37 weeks. We got to 34 and 34 weeks and five days, I think it was. And I remember clear as that, it was dead on midnight. I was trying to get some work finished. Steph had gone to bed. We dropped Evelyn at my parents' place that night. My parents had said, look, just give me, give us Evelyn. We'll just look after her because sure as eggs, your twins are going to go in the middle of the night. What are you going to do? Wake Evelyn up and drop her off and you're not going to have time and just we'll just take her. We'll just look after her for a couple of weeks until you have the twins. That night, we had dinner with my parents, dropped Evelyn off, come home, and that night, yeah, I remember Steph's gone to bed about midnight. She's just going, man, shit. Come in, there's blood through the bed. Ensuite looks like a crime scene. I'm like, like, where's that coming from? And she's like, I'm bleeding. So I'm like, madly ring the birthing unit at Westmead Hospital, and I just blurted out. I'm like, my wife's 34 weeks pregnant with twins. My son's got a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. This is happening, this is happening, she's bleeding, blah, 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 blah. And this beautiful Irish nurse on the other end of the phone, just, and I won't try and do the Irish accent because <laughs> it's just a bad Irish accent, but she's like, Dahl, just calm down. Everything's fine. She goes, just put her in the car, bring her down. We'll sort it out. And I went, oh, okay. So I remember I raced around, I grabbed the bag, I grabbed everything, I chucked it in the car pulled the car up to the front door so Steph didn't have to walk too far, did everything. And Steph was so calm. She was brilliant. Like she's a, on my head's going a thousand miles an hour. And she's like, it's okay. I'm not in any pain. I'm fine. She goes, these kids are fine. It's fine. I can feel them moving. They're fine. I'm like, okay. So pulled up to Westmead Hospital, went in via emergency. And I just said, I just need a wheelchair and I need to go to maternity. And they're like, yeah, mate, no worries. Boom. Just treated us like a silkworm. It sounds like you needed a wheelchair too. Oh, no, I, you know what? I, I think I went into, I went into husband mode. I went into, right, I've got to fix this. I've got to, I've got to protect. I've got to, so I was in that do something itis. What can I do? Right. I can get her there safely. I can get a wheelchair. I can push her. I can do all these things. And yeah, I went straight up in the birthing unit and they had everything there because of everything that had gone on in the pre. They knew who we were. They knew everything about us. And the pregnancy and everything, they're like, yep, that's fine, no worries. Did a couple of checks. I said, yep. I said, look, you're going to have to, we'll give you some steroids now to increase their lung capacity because obviously at 34 weeks, their lungs are underdeveloped. We'll try and give them this so that it'll get in their bloodstream at least, but you're going to be having these babies in the next 12 hours. 
via emergency Caesar. So it's just a matter of when we can get the obstetrician here and stuff. And they were trying to get Steph to hold on for as long as possible. And then I remember they did a shift change about seven o'clock and the new midwife come on and she looked, she goes, you are having these babies. There is no question you are having them today. And we're like, right, okay. So they prepped Steph for theatre. We'll, the obstetrician came in and said, look, this is what I'm going to do, blah, blah, blah. We said, yep, no worries. She said, look, there's a, we have what we call the PEDS team, so the paediatric teams. We'll have two teams there, two PEDS trolleys, and we'll just work it out. But she said, you won't be able to touch your boy, Rory. Like He will just go off. He'll be intubated and put in an induced coma straight away because we don't want him, because we don't know what condition he's lung in, how he's going to breathe, all this sort of stuff. We basically don't even want him to cry. We just want him to come out and we're just going to deal with him. And I'm like, okay, no worries, fair enough. Anyway, went down to surgery and there's a, like a little ante room outside the surgery. So they take Steph in and I'm waiting in this ante room and there's, that's where all the supplies are, like all your tubes and cannulas and, you know, gowns and everything like that. So I'm all gowned up and masked up and stuff. And obviously I wear glasses. So every time I wear a face mask, my glasses fog up because the steam comes out of my, my face mask and fogs up my glasses. And so I'm standing there and I'm watching these nurses run back and forth and I'm like, nurses don't run. Like nurses are pretty calm. And these nurses weren't running, but they were moving with purpose. And I'm like, okay, this is they're, – they're like the duck on the water, like the, the legs that the, – they're paddling pretty hard here. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, like what's going on, what's going on? And when one of the nurses stopped, she saw me and I obviously had like tears in my eyes and stuff. And she stopped. She goes, Dad, it's going to be okay. She goes, we're looking after it. It's going to be all right. She goes, give us 10 minutes. We've just got to prep. She goes, if you want to take any photos, she goes, you better be ready because she goes, Indica is the fastest deliverer you've ever seen. These babies are coming out and they're coming out in a hurry. I'm like, okay, no worries. Anyway, so we went in and obviously they got the sheet up. Steph was only under lo- um, only under a local anesthetic, so got the sort of the sheet up and everything and I'm holding Steph's hand and sort of watching the expressions on Steph's face. So obviously the doctor was in there, obstetrician was in there and feeling around and trying to grab Rory out and out comes Rory and he holds him up and she holds him up and sort of lets Steph kiss his foot and then just foom, whizzes him off like Cam Smith would have been proud of the past. Like she just whizzed Rory off straight to the Peds team. She went in, she grabbed Georgie. Came out, boom, kiss on the foot, same thing, boom, off to the PEDS team. It was like 10.25 and 10.26 a.m. they were born. They were a minute apart. That's how quick she delivered them. And I remember, yeah, just seeing Rory, he's on this like PEDS trolley and they put a plastic sheet over him and with a hole in it so they can start working, put an intubated tube down his throat, started putting central lines in him and everything like that. And I'm sort of looking over at him. The nurse just goes, come on, Dad, let's go with Georgie. Let's go downstairs. And she just sort of took me away with Georgie. And she said, let's, let's concentrate on her. And so, yeah, we got her downstairs and um, they said, look, you can, like she was all wrapped up by this stage in a blanket. And they said, look, let's uh, weigh her, work out how much she weighs and, and you know, what are you going to name her and everything like this. And you know, I remember weighing her, she was 2.4 kilos. And I'm like, well, if she's 2.4, then, you know, Rory's got to be close. Like he's hoping and uh, I remember, yeah, we were just doing all those sort of cute new baby things and we're in this room with maybe, I think, four or five other babies and these alarms started going off. And I'm like, oh, what's that? And she goes, and the kid next door to Georgie was going into cardiac arrest. It had just been born a few hours earlier and it went into cardiac arrest and the nurse just said, Dad, get out. you got to go. And so I had to put Georgie down, went out. I remember just sort of standing outside the door going, I can't. 
like I can't touch my kid. And next door, Rory had actually been brought down and he was in the next room and they were still working on him and, and putting in everything they needed to put in. And I'm just standing in this corridor. I couldn't ring anyone. I was like, because I'm in this area of the hospital where you can't use a mobile phone, I just on my own. And I, I, I couldn't go back to Steph. She was in recovery from the Caesar. And I was just, I was just on my own. And um, yeah, like just a really, really hard sort of, you know, I don't know whether it was 10 minutes, half an hour, two hours. I couldn't tell you how long that lasted. But it, uh, it was just a really hard moment to not be able to be able to touch your kids or talk to someone or whatever. And I remember I finished up just going, look, I can't, I can't do anything. So I just, I walked out of the hospital out the front so I could use my phone. And um, so I tried to ring my sister. She didn't answer her phone because obviously she was at work. <laughs> tried to ring my parents. They didn't answer their phone. They were somewhere doing something with Evelyn. And I finished up ringing my mother-in-law and uh, just going, oh, Steph's had the twins and this is what's happening. She's like, oh, great, fantastic. She goes, how are you? And I said, lonely. Like, yeah, I just need to talk to someone. And, um, yeah, my mother-in-law, like, picked up the phone and thank God she did. So, yeah, but um, that day was obviously, yeah, very, very full-on in terms of that you're not in control, like you're just a hurtling rocket just just firing through space and everybody else is doing whatever it is to, to make it happen and you're just along for the ride. That's probably the easiest way to describe it. Yeah, and uh, and, and another, like, that really highlights uh, the experience of, of a lot of dads in this space of like when something goes wrong in a hospital, you're surrounded by health professionals, but you're the last person that gets the help. You, you know, you're kind of uh, left often alone, like you say. And, you know, there's no charge code for dads. There's no, you know, we're just meant to be, like you say, this rock. And sometimes we're struggling. And I, I mean, my own experience was kind of similar. You know, we had to lie to get a social worker to actually come and talk to me after the birth trauma that that I experienced. And it was really sad that that's actually the, the experience of many men in this space where we are just overlooked. We are not really given any support. Yeah. And, and look, I'd never criticised the nurses and doctors at the hospital because I said I think they did a fantastic job. At the end of the day, they saved. And, and I didn't realise it at the time. And this is what I didn't realise. What had happened was Rory's placenta had abrupted. So that means Steph was bleeding. His placenta was actually bleeding. And that is actually not only dangerous for him, but it's also dangerous for Steph. And I didn't realize that it was the time. And it was only a couple of days later. And one of the nurses explained it to me. And she said, you could have lost all three of them if we didn't do what we did. She said, they all could have died. And I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that was a possibility at the time. Like my thought of a woman dying in childbirth well you know that happened in the 1800s like i didn't think a woman in you know 2018 could die from childbirth and she's like yeah she goes she was technically bleeding like that's why we were keeping such a close eye on her and pushing for the caesar the way we did because we had to get those kids out when we did and i was like okay far out like that's and i'm kind of glad i didn't know it like in some ways like as I said before, you know, like I will share the information around and, you know, like get support. But in that moment, I'm glad I just didn't know. I'm glad I just was sort of blissfully unaware and I'm looking around at this team of doctors and nurses doing their thing going, okay, like they're doing their thing. Fantastic. Like, you know, and and I get it. Like they're operating in a world of this is what I do. This is the result. 
you know, watch for the outcome and then I pick them that make the next decision. And they've got to be doing that in a very sort of clinical and calculated way because they're saving someone's life. So I get that. I completely understand it. But you're right. Like there isn't like, you know, if you say, oh, you want to, they say to the mum, do you want a support person? Do you want a doula? Do you want this? Do you want that? Well, there's no support person for dad to hold his hand or to go, mate, let's just go grab a can of Coke and and a muffin and we'll work out what's going on. There's nobody to do that with. And as I said, that was the thing for me was that I walked out of the hospital going, I'm on my own. Like I, I can't touch or talk to anybody in my immediate circle that I want to. So I think, you know, once, like as I said, I was to think back, I probably should have had someone prepped there to say, if you see my number come up on your phone, you need to answer it. You need to have that sort of almost like in case of emergency, like emergency contact, you prep that person and you say, I'm going to ring you and I'm going to swear uncontrollably or I'm going to cry or I'm going to do this. But whatever I do, can you just answer the phone for me day or night? And you just need to probably have that person in your corner going, yeah, mate, okay, I'll answer the bloody phone for you, you know, whoever that might be. Um, yeah, yeah, but look, I think that that's actually you're, you're kind of blaming yourself in this. And I and I look, I want to, I, I want to kind of, I don't want to make, make it seem like it's the individuals that I'm criticizing here. And I'm not really criticizing. I'm just kind of saying, I think it should be different. And, and I'm talking about an assist, like systemic level, you know, the system should actually have some form of, I mean, because they knew what was coming for you and they knew that you had a high risk pregnancy, you know, you were supporting a high risk pregnancy and yet you're still expected to walk through that on your own and, you know, and, and be, and I, I think that's part, that is definitely part of the work over the longer period that, that we'll be doing with the Prepare Foundation. And that is advocating for men to be able to have some kind of support around this because, you know, those kind of experiences result in, in trauma in men. And that trauma uh, doesn't have anywhere to be processed currently in our society. And we need to recognize that men are human and dads are human and that we actually experience these things and have post-traumatic stress and that that can have social impacts that are, you know, negative on our, on our society. And I think that we need to re- start to begin to say dads, need support sometimes when births are traumatic or, or you know, situations arise. No, 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 no. And I said, I'm not, it's probably not phrasing it that way, but as I said, it, in terms of like if I look back, I go, yeah, whether it be, a, as I said, from a, a system level that someone provides that or you do it yourself or whatever, but you do need, I'm probably more saying like identifying the need, you need someone to be able to be yeah, either on the phone or, yeah, hold your hand or put their arm around you and go. And I've got to say, like, the nurses were pretty good. Like, every time I passed a nurse in a corridor, they knew who I was. Like, if I was in the if I was in the maternity ward or in, especially when, once the kids went to NICU, I'd walk in, the nurses knew exactly who I was. Like, they'd go, oh, hey, Ian, how are you? Like, you know, they knew I was Georgie's dad or Rory's dad or whatever because that's the level that they go to in terms of their care to get to know the parents, to get to know who's who's what and that. And, you know, and they would, they say, how are you going? How are you feeling? Are you all right? Like, you know, and they were really good. But as I said, that was obviously in the days post the birth when we went through yeah, sort of the NICU stay and then everything that happened after that. Yeah, but they do have their normal jobs to do as well. Oh, so they're not, they're, they're kind of, those questions are happening in passing. It's not actually someone sitting down and saying, 
uh, how are you really doing? I want to hear, I want to hear the 10 minute version, not the 10 second version. And you were probably, you know, you're giving them the 10 second version. And obviously as blokes, we do like, we do do that. Oh, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good. But, you know, I'm going absolutely shit, mate. You're never going to blurt that out to someone in a passing conversation. That's right. But if they had someone who was trained professional who actually said, look, I actually really want to know, come on, let's sit down and, and how, how are you really doing? And you're able to, process a little bit more of that you know that kind of energy oh look that's it's a harrowing tale mate and um thank you for sharing uh, i mean is there anything else you'd like to share about those early days the the you know obviously yeah like so obviously rory had to be operated on and stuff so like to yeah, not leave the story there it has obviously has a happy ending it, has, it obviously has a happy ending so yeah i'd gone home i'd come back in the next morning and i'd pick stuff up and we were going down to NICU. I had Steph in the wheelchair from maternity and I was walking into NICU and this trolley goes past, like this humidity crib goes past with a team of doctors and nurses and oxygen tank and everything else like that. And I just went, that's Rory. And they and the doctor looked at me and went, oh, hello, how are you? And they went, here's your son. And I went, where are you taking him? And they go, oh, we're taking him to the kids' hospital. Do you want to follow us? I'm like, yes. And it was just, I'd just come out of the elevator just as they came past. And so we followed them down. So they took him down to the Grace Ward, which is the surgical ward for, for babies at, at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, and wheeled him into his little spot. And um, yeah, at this stage, he's in an induced coma. He's got tube down his throat, lines in his neck, lines in his stomach. He had about seven different pumps, you know, morphine and antibiotics and nutrients and all this sort of stuff keeping him going. And I think it was day three, I want to say. And then I was up with Steph and Georgie at the main hospital and Steph was feeding Georgie and they gave us a call and said, look, the surgeon is do- currently doing a transplant surgery, but he may have time in his schedule this afternoon to do Rory's operation. We need you to come down and sign the paperwork. I'm like, okay, no. So we came down and we signed all the paperwork and all the permissions and everything. And we're sort of standing there over his bed and, one of the nurse, and the nurse said to us, she goes, have you held him yet? And Steph's like, no, I haven't had a chance to hold him yet. She's like, oh, God, well, we've got to fix that. So even though he had all these tubes and wires, they worked it out to get him out of the crib so that Steph could nurse him for the first time. And so we'd sort of prepped ourselves mentally, you know, what the surgery was going to, you know, sending him off to surgery and stuff. Anyway, they come back and I said, look, the surgery's gone on too long. He can't operate for that many hours. It'll, it'll be tomorrow morning. So, yeah, came in the next morning, got down there at sort of 8 a.m. and, they said, yeah, and I remember, yeah, they sort of wheeled him out and we followed and Steph's still in a wheelchair at this stage. Like she can't walk. She's had an emergency. So she, she couldn't walk from the Caesar. So I'm wheeling Steph in and they get you to the point there at surgery where they go beyond a point. They're like, this is where you say your goodbyes. You can't come beyond this point. And I remember just, you know, just wishing with all my might for, you know, just be okay and yeah, just hoping like, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done just to watch your kid just be wheeled off and going, I hope that bloke does his job today. Like, you know, I hope he's on. And from my perspective, like this was this was his life-saving surgery, you know, and but when I talk to the surgeon, he goes, well, mate, he goes, I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon, I do transplants. He goes, for me, this is like a motor mechanic changing a tyre. He goes, all I did was, he goes, we pulled his bowel down, made sure it was all in the right order. And then we put a collagen patch in, we patch the diaphragm, make sure it's all stitched up. And they go, we were really lucky because his lung and his heart folded out, like his lung came and folded out, his left lung folded out, his heart sort of was able to drift across. There was enough space there for it. There was no other issues in his chest cavity. We stitched him up, job done. 
And they're like, it was as easy as that. And I'm like, yeah, easy for you, but it's not your kid. Like, you know, so, but I must admit. And then, yeah, so he then spent five weeks in the kids' hospital. So graduating from high intensive care, NICU, through to special care. And he just kicked goals every day. He, he did not ever have a bad day. He never went downhill. He never crashed. He never had bad vitals. His oxygen levels were great. His heart rate was great. He never bled. He never, he just got better and better and better. And I remember talking to one of the nurses one day and she goes, he hasn't read the script because she goes, this is an eight to 12 week recovery. He's done this in five. She goes, he did not read the script on this one. And I go, well, yeah, he's a fighter. Like he just, he had... And yeah, you know, he doesn't know. Like if you and I went through that surgery as adults, we'd be we'd have all that information and in our mentally we'd be going, right, I've got to fight this, I've got to get better, I've got to, you know, I've got to do all that stuff. Well, he doesn't know that. He doesn't have that conscious. He's come out, this is his world, he's been cut open and and he just inside, he fought. Like he just went, Yeah, I've got to go. Like I just gotta keep going. And five years later, he still is. He's still bouncing around, just fighting. Like, you know, like he just, he wants to go. He wants to do everything he can. If it's cricket, if it's soccer, if it's swimming, if it's running, he wants to be a part of it. And he can be because he's healthy, happy, little five-year-old. He's off to school. He's doing kindergarten. He reads, he counts. He does everything he's meant to do. And you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know the difference. So, but yeah, but as I said, that obviously when I say like five weeks in NICU, it was, there's a lot of, lot that went into that five weeks of running around and being in there at midnight and dropping off milk and, you know, spending time by his crib and reading to him. And, and then obviously back and forth, like, you know, I've got another twin. I've got Georgina at home and Steph at home. And yeah, Steph can't get around and as well as she could because of the Caesar. So I'm looking after her. Steph's expressing milk. I'm taking that milk to the hospital. I'm taking Steph to the hospital where, yeah, it was a, I, I did a, I did a check on my phone. Like you got the health app on your phone with Apple and in the eight days. So Georgie was in NICU for eight days just because she was a bit preemie and underweight. And as yeah, said, Rory was in for five weeks. But in that eight days, I walked 81 kilometers around Westmead Hospital, <laughs> just going back and forth from West, Westmead Main Hospital down to Westmead Children's Hospital. I did 81 kilometres in eight days. So <laughs> it, was good. it was good for the fitness at least. So, All right. So walk us through the recovery after it gets out of NICU. And- yeah. So he, said he went through, got through NICU, got him home and just like, because Georgie was already home. So we had her on her feed and her sleep schedule. So it's like, well, buddy, you've just got to kind of get into this routine, man. Like, You've just got to fit into this. So I was lucky. I had 12 weeks off work. So I was still at home every day. And because he'd had the, because he'd had the intubation and everything and stuff, he didn't get the suckling response for breastfeeding. So we bottle fed him. So the really good thing was, was I got to bottle feed him. So as a dad, I got a really, really close connection to him. So we, I, but it was expressed. Yeah, express breast milk. So yeah, so, so we had to do we had to supplement some of it because of um just like some nutrition stuff to bring him up to weight and and get him going. So he was two point one kilos. So because he was that little bit behind, like so he was getting some extra nutrients and supplements in his feeds. Was was that colostrum? Yeah, it's sort of like a colostrum type. You know, I, I, yeah, but it was it was that sort of yeah. We used to give him a syringe of that, but yeah, he came home and. Yeah, he just fit into the schedule. So, yeah, Steph would get up and breastfeed Georgie and I'd get up and bottle feed Rory and then Steph would go off on Express and I'd change the kids and settle them down into bed. So, by the time Steph had finished expressing and putting the bottles in the fridge and everything else like that, we're both ready to go back to bed and, you know, have some sleep in the night. And, yeah, during the day we'd do the same thing. And um, obviously, yeah, there was checkup appointments and stuff and going back and forth and running around with him. But I will say probably like 
like you always check that your kids are okay and whatever else, but for him, I forget what age it was, I would check every night, are you breathing? Are you okay? Like I would just do that double check. I'd have my ear up to his mouth just making sure he was breathing, like just, I don't know, I knew he was okay, but and I knew nothing could go wrong, but just in my mind, like I'd just double check that that little extra bit and you know but um but yeah obviously yeah, the, the, the challenges of trying to get twins to sleep and you know changing yeah two kids kids at the one time and you know feeding them at the same time and and everything like that but the the big thing there is just routine just routine stick to the routine stick to the stick to the plan and it works if you lose the routine it becomes chaos so um yeah we were very big on having a routine we we're very big on getting out of the house once a day. So we were lucky. We, our, our local shops were about 2Ks away or yeah, K and a half away. We would walk to the shops. We're like, right, we're going to go walk to the shops. We're going to go get dinner for tonight, like get the stuff for dinner for tonight, put the kids in the pram, walk to the shops. And that got us out of the house. And whether that was at 11 a.m. or 4 p.m., it didn't matter. We got out of the house. We got some fresh air. We got some sunlight. We got to talk to each other, like, and on that walk, we're obviously, you know, settling the kids in the pram. They're getting fresh air. You know, we'd get to talk to each other, and it was just a good time. Like, you know, we really valued that time to in in those early days in terms of settling into what I'd call a normal routine. So you go back to work, and and so what? You know, walk us through the next few months once you kind of, you know, how do we establish and keep the routine of twins when? Yeah. Oh, my what? My wife's a superstar. <laughs> I think is the is the, is the is the easy answer to that one. Um, yeah, as I said before, it's about doing those things. So I would go off to work, and I would have dinner cooked, ready to go that night. So if I came home from work, dinner was already cooked in the fridge. Just pull it out, just to you know, whether it be a curry or a, you know a simple stew or something, whatever. We could just whack in the microwave, heat up, dinner's ready, bang, we can eat. You know, having things like like meal prep done, but yeah, go off to work, go to work. Steph's parents were amazing, and mum was amazing. She'd be over and come and help her. Um, yeah, obviously, yeah, my parents helping out, looking after Evelyn. I think by that stage, Evelyn was going to daycare. Can't remember actually. Yeah, I think she might have started daycare by that stage, just to. So Steph could concentrate on the kids and stuff. But yeah, if not, she was certainly at the grandparents and and you know, that relief of having the three year old then off with the grandparents then allowed Steph to just concentrate on the twins and and stuff. And then um yeah, Steph found the local model birth association and went to the new parent morning tea and sort of connected to those women there. And she always sort of said, you know, like it's sort of like finding your tribe. She got a great amount of support out of those people and out of those ladies and the other mums that have been through twin pregnancies and raising twins and stuff that could give her that advice. And, yeah, so as I said, it's a blurred looking back on it now. But, yeah, we just come home and you come home from work and you feed the kids and, you know, and the next thing you know, they're six months old and they're sitting up in a high chair and you're trying to feed them mashed pumpkin and, and apple and, you know, <laughs> everything. And, yeah, next thing they're picked up a whole sausage and they're munching on it in the high chair. Like, you know, it just, it all just sort of whoosh, like, yeah, sort of spiraled through fairly quickly. But, you know, I think the hardest thing is when they get sick together because if one gets sick, then the other one's catching it. So I remember they got tonsillitis. They're probably at some nine, 10 months old. They got tonsillitis together. That was, that was three days. It just, didn't sleep, just hell. <laughs> just, yeah, that was pretty awful. Constant but, crying. Constant crying and what's wrong and you can't tell what's wrong and, yeah, so. But, yeah, like obviously a lot of nervous moments and 
for me, like that cons, as I said, like I'd always check if Rory was breathing more so. Like, obviously, checked on Georgie and obviously looked after and everything, but just there was just that extra 10% where I'd be like, I'm just going to double check this. I'm just going to, and there's that nagging thing in the back of your head. Well, you know, he got cut open at four days old and put back together. Like, you know, does everything work? Like, you know, because they sort of say like there's risks he could have a twisted or a perforated bowel because obviously they've moved the bowel down, you know, so you could get adhesions. You can get, so all these things to look at out for is his spine developing correctly because obviously because they've put something in there is the muscle going to pull one way and twist him and he's going to be on a lean like so you're constantly looking at the way he sits and the way he rolls and does he favor one side and does he do this and does he do that and it never leaves you yeah it never leaves you like it never never stops and you just sort of you know and as i said you love your kids equally you, you don't ever you know play favorites or anything like that but you just i don't know even to this day, I just hug him that little bit tighter. I just, you know, just one extra kiss. Like, it's, you just do. I don't know why, but you just do. So what's the best bit about being a dad? I think watching the people that they're becoming. Like, like I mean, you don't know if you've done a good job as a parent or not until, I guess, their parents themselves because it would be like asking a painter, you know, oh, I can have a look at your painting halfway through and they're gonna get, you're going to look at it and go, well, it's not finished. Like, I don't know what it's going to be. But I think just watching them become the people that becoming and watching their little traits and being proud of going, I hope I influenced that. I hope I I gave them that value or I gave them that lesson or whatever it might be. Even this morning, like I dropped Georgie off to school and she was walking up and she's only, you know, she's in kindergarten. There was this other girl there that I think she was a bit upset or whatever and that. And the teacher said, oh, Georgie, do you mind taking her up to class? And Georgie's like, yeah, no worries, come with me. And she held her hand and walked off and I'm like, I hope I've given her that confidence. I hope I've instilled that trait or, you know, we've instilled that trait in her to give her that confidence that she can be that person to to care for someone else and to look after. And, and Georgie especially, Georgie is the most caring person. Like if you're sick or you're tired, like I remember there's been a couple of times there I've like had to lay down on the lounge, I've been a bit tired and she'll come over and put a blanket on you. Like she puts a blanket on me and goes, oh, I hope you're okay, daddy. Like, you know, and I hope as a parent we've – We've influenced that. So that for me is my best bit is watching them become those people and and going, okay, well, I'm I'm doing an I'm doing an okay job at it. Yeah, good on you, mate. Um and what so I just you know, with you and Steph, how did you kind of keep it, you know, keep yourselves your relationship going well and what's the secret there and you know because obviously the stresses must have been massive and yeah, oh, 100%. conflict and yeah. you know and oh, uh, realizing to listen, I think, and I probably learnt that late. Like I made shit tons of mistakes in terms of that and in terms of getting things right. You know, there's nothing's ever perfect and you don't ever get anything right and we're probably still working it even on even on myself, you know, like, you know, your own mental health and your own understanding of yourself as you, as you change and you progress. But I think in terms of our relationship, you know, we just – the biggest thing I learnt was, and Steph said it to me one day, she goes, don't try and fix everything. She goes, if I tell you there's something wrong, she goes, don't don't try and fix it. Just listen to me. Just validate the fact that I've want to say something and just listen. Don't answer me. Don't don't come up with a solution. Don't try and, you know, come up with a 10-point plan. Just listen. And that's probably out of that process. I learned that in terms of our relationship. Like in terms, and I'd say probably 
our understanding of each other and our marriage and whatever else is probably better now than obviously what it ever was because you've been through that experience together. You've come out the other side of it. And as I said, we're not, we're not perfect people. We have bad days. We, we have arguments. Everyone has arguments, but it's about realizing what's the big stuff and what's the little stuff. And is it worth arguing over? Is it worth getting upset about? Is it okay to get upset and get that frustration out and let it go, you know, and then move on to the next thing or whatever it might be. But yeah, I certainly think. Yeah, me, as I said, as a dad or as a male or whatever, making assumptions and thinking, oh, I've got the answer to this, I'll, I'll just solve it. Just take a moment and listen to your wife and your partner and go, okay, let's do what they want to do or let's at least understand what they're going through and how they're feeling because, once again, massive change, massive, massive identity shift, massive their perspective of life has just changed. Like there's a quantum shift there. That's right. She's gone from me to we, and in her case, me to we, we. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I and, don't you know, know. And, yeah, and, and, and like, I mean, Steph's, Steph's really embraced the, the being a mum of twins. Like, she's the secretary of the, of the, of the Multiple Births Association now, like our local Multiple Births Association. She's become the secretary of it. She does a lot of time, like, you know, volunteering and, you know, coming up with ideas for fundraising and, you know, how to support other families and stuff because for her, as I said, that was she found her tribe. She found people that got her and understood her and uh, an outlet for her to sort of put back and give back through her experience and what she'd learnt because she's like, well, yeah, clearly I wasn't the only one who went through, who's gone through this and there's other mums and other parents that are going through this. So, yeah, not to speak for her but it, it seems from my perspective that's what she's doing with it and um, I'm really proud of her for it too. Did you want to share um, what it was like? You know, we spoke earlier a little bit about uh, the baby blues versus postnatal depression and so was there was a diagnosis? Did she need therapy? Was What what happened there? And and also how was it supporting her as, you know, as a, watching that and being a dad? Yeah, it was probably – she just probably got to the point of – and as I said, once again, I'm probably paraphrasing and probably not putting in the best terms, but just being overwhelmed and just not coping. And she just went to a doctor and spoke to him and got some medication just to, because it's, it's not like you go, oh, well, you know, go and get some therapy and work through it. Or like, you know, you've got two kids that you need to look after. You need to be better tomorrow. And obviously mental health isn't something you can fix in a day through therapy and through everything like that, but you can sort of at least balance it out with medication and stuff. So yeah, there was a period of time there. She took some medication just to get a bit better and realize yeah, everything's going to be okay and, and stuff. But, yeah, it, it's still something I think about now, like, yeah, how could I have done that better? How could I have better supported her? And I think at the time too, like, when I say about, like, mistakes that I made and things like that, at the time I was just eternally grateful that I had these kids. I'm like, the world is just sunshine and rainbows. I'm like, I've got these kids. These kids are alive. Like, I did not have to go through the process of what I thought I was going to have to of bearing a child. I've now got these two kids and they're alive and they're healthy. So I'm just thinking the world's, you know, miracles. And she's like, this is so, like, and I'm looking at her and she's going, this is so stressful. And this is, I'm like, just be grateful. Just be grateful we've got this. Yeah, easy to say. Yeah. Easy to Mm. say. Absolutely easy to say. But but like, I'm not looking at it from her perspective. I'm not understanding what she was going through and the changes that she's gone through physically, emotionally, everything. I wasn't looking at it from that perspective and I wasn't understanding that. And that's probably a massive mistake that I made in that, in that period. Cause I'm like, but this is like, Everything worked out fine. It all worked out fine. 
And it's like just because Rory survived and Georgie survived and they're little happy, healthy kids doesn't mean everything worked out fine and everything's okay. You've still got, you know, all the other stuff around it. Yeah, Steph, as I said, physically and mentally and myself physically and mentally and everything as well of how we then, you know, function and identify ourselves and, you know, understand what our role now is as parents. And, yeah, I probably just was like I got through that challenge and I was like, thank God I got through it. You know, like I was like, I finished the marathon. Great. Fantastic. I've crossed the finish line. That's all I've got to do. But it's now, okay. Well, now it's an gonna, ultra marathon. Yeah. yeah it's an, now we're just going to turn around and do another lap. Like that's all we're going to, but it's just in a different phase or in a different mode now raising them and, you know, getting through that challenge of, you know, and it is, it's a constant, like I was reading something on a Facebook group, multiple fathers and that, and, you know, one of the dads was sort of saying something about, how, you know, when I look after the kids, it's a breeze. I don't know what my wife goes on about. Like, I don't know why she sees it so challenging. And I was just like, I did the, oh, mate, you are on a hiding to nothing. But it was the thing of, yeah, because you're looking after the kids. You make them breakfast, you make them lunch, you feed them dinner, and you put them off to bed. But you haven't cleaned the house. You haven't cooked dinner for the next week. You haven't thought about the shopping list. You haven't thought about, oh, they've got these appointments coming up. Oh, they've got to make, I've got to pay that because they've got to go to swimming and they've got to do this and they've got to do that. And, and it's, and, St- and Steph talks about it. And this is the thing, like, and as I said, I still suck at as a, as a dad and a husband. It's the mental load. It's the, I'm a great doer and Steph's a great planner. And I think most people in their relationships have that, you know, task identify or task roles or whatever identifies one or the other. And, Steph carries that mental load for the household. She's the one going, okay, we've got to be here on this date and doing this. We've got to, you know, da-da-da-da. Like, I'm great if you give me on the day and say, you've got to go five places. Well, okay, I can drive my way around Sydney in five places and be on time for every single one of them. I can do that. But if you told me to think about it a week before, I can't think about it. I don't. Yeah, I look, don't. Yeah. Pro, I don't process that. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> mate, you've you've actually hit the nail on the head there, and and I'm glad you brought it up. Mental load. It it is it, like when we're talking about co-parenting, the best case scenario is when dads are actually taking some of that mental load. You know, um, you know the school kit, the school uh, PNC, or you know what what happens at school. Those kind of things, taking on responsibility for things that we we. And uh, admittedly, I think that men don't necessarily know about this just yet all that much. Although maybe they do, but they bloody ignore it. I don't. I don't know. It's it's not so much that I think it's what we prioritize and what. Like other people prioritize. So for me, like, I mean, I was looking at it going, like the kids are going off to school. So my priority is, all right, let's get school uniforms. Like I want to get them as early as possible because I do not want to be there on the 24th of January trying to get the right size uniforms. So we went in December and got all that sorted. And Steph's like, why is that your priority right now? And I'm like, because I just want that ticked off. For some reason in my mind, having them ready for school, and I, and I don't know whether it's because my mom worked in a school for 25 years, my sister's a school teacher. I was like, school's the priority. Like, let's get that. Or it was something physical that I could do. I could take the kids to the uniform shop. I could get that done. Like that was just a, a physical thing that I could do and I could tick that off the list and I could go, look what I did. I did this. I got the kids' uniforms, you know, and it was sort of like a, it was one less thing off the list. So in terms of like, you know, I prioritized that where I think Steph was prioritizing some other stuff obviously as well, but it just, as a term, in terms of mental load, well, even if you do prioritize other things, even you can take 10, 20% of those things that need to be, if they're physical things that need to be done, go and get them done. Like, you know, yeah. 
I think dads love the activity. Yeah, so like I'll always do the shopping. Like I said, I said I'll go and like I cook every night. So she's like, "Well, you go do the shopping. You know what you want to eat. You know what you want to cook. You go and get it. Like you go to Woolies. You sort out the shop." And but I still say to her, "Well, can you send me a list?" And she's like, <laughs> "So she'll go. She'll send me. She'll send me the. She'll send me the list of everything else we need, and then write dinner stuff." <laughs> So I get all the stuff for dinner in my head and then she sends me, and this is what else we need to survive. <laughs> oh, well, mate, yeah, it sounds like it's actually working anyway. So uh, you mentioned, Steph, uh, you know, needed medication. Obviously, you've had a kind of traumatic experience and do you want to share perhaps how, like, what was your emotional landscape throughout all this? Were you in a state of, I don't know, disarray? Yeah, as I said, like, I mean, I probably went, like as I said, there's a bit of roller coaster. So probably during the pregnancy phase and that early birth phase, I was obviously very stressed and very sort of in my own world, but not self-aware enough to understand what I was doing. Because I was so focused on what was going on, I was just like day at a time, just day at a time, just forget yourself. Don't worry about you. Like there's no exercise, there's no healthy eating, there's no anything. I just just do what you need to do to make everything else around like this work. So I probably neglected myself there for a bit. And then obviously as once I was born, I was just hugely grateful. I was just like, oh, this is fantastic. I've got these kids and this is magnificent. And 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 I'm not saying I walked around on cloud nine and I was happy all the time. Like I certainly had I was tired and, you know, I had bad days and, you know, probably got cranky when I shouldn't get cranky and whatever else. But it's probably only now, I'm looking like now, as I said, sort of four and a half, five years later, where I've probably sat back and reflected and gone like a couple of my behaviours now where I go, I get cranky a bit too much or, you know, I'm not really feeling myself or whatever. So it's only now that I've actually gone off and spoken to someone professionally about this and and everything that's happened and and how I feel about it, as I said, four and a half, five years later. And, that, and that's been really beneficial in, in a lot of ways and sort of identified a lot of things in terms of, yeah, mental health and mental mental fitness, I guess, for want of a better phrase, and, and you know, just understanding ways of coping with a stressful situation and how you process that and your awareness of it. And then obviously the feelings and the and the emotions that you tie to that. Like, as I said, like, you know, just your sort of like this hypervigilance that you have around your kids and, you know, don't do that. You know, it's like, it's like living with MC Hammer. Don't touch that. Don't touch it. You know, can't touch it. You know, like, don't, you know, don't do anything wrong. Don't, don't break it. You know, don't, don't get hurt. Don't get, you know, don't make a mistake type thing because I'm going, well, I've already been through this. Like I've already seen one of my kids go through surgery. I don't want to see it again. But then you're like, I've got to let my kids make mistakes. I've got to let my kids stuff up. They're going to get hurt. They're going to get dirty. They're going to break things. Things are going to go wrong. And accepting that and realizing that that's the natural course of things. Because if I completely wrap the kids in cotton wool, well, they're never going to learn. They're never going to become rounded and whole people. So it's that balancing act of, all right, I'm going to leave the training wheels on the bike, but I'm going to raise them up half an inch so that the bike wobbles a bit, you know, and let them make the mistake. Yeah, the bike's going to wobble. Yeah, you're going to be a bit scared but it's going to be okay. All right. I'm going to be here. If you do fall over, like I'm not going to catch you every time, but if you do fall over, I'll patch your knee up. You know, obviously not letting them do silly things or not letting them dive off the roof into the pool, but, you know, just trying to instill in them those values and those ideas that, okay, let's not use the house as a jungle gym. Let's wait till we go to the park and use that as a jungle gym or, you know, but as I said, understanding the balance of kids just want to be kids and you've got to let them be kids in some ways too. So I guess, yes, yeah. That's brilliant. 
Yeah, that's brilliant advice, mate. Look, I was actually going to ask you, uh, did you have any kind of pearls of wisdom, you know, as as a new, uh, you know, as a dad who's kind of the journeyman? And I think you just said it. But, uh, like, I will ask the question, though, like, is there, you know, more consciously, is there anything that you would want to pass on that you might have wanted to know yourself to anyone listening, recognizing, of course, that most of the people who we're trying to reach here are first time expectant dads. Obviously, there will be other people listening, but um, it's mostly for these guys and and we want to give them the the smoothest kind of transition of fatherhood. So what, what would you like to pass on? I think, as I said earlier, like in terms of my learnings, that one is reach out, reach out to your mates. Get that circle of friends, you know, whether it be someone at work, you know, you might not have chatted to them all the time, whatever, but you know that they've got a three or a four year old kid or something, whatever. Chat to them, strike up a conversation with them. I say, mate, how did you do this? Like, you know, what was that like? And just, and you might, it's the old thing, you know, the only stupid question is the one you don't ask. You know, if you can join in a Facebook group and, you know, or a, or a social group or whatever that's got like minded people. And I will say to this, just on the Facebook group thing and stuff as well, find a healthy space. If you're like I joined, there was a dad's group that I joined and I lasted about three days because it was just a bunch of blokes telling sexist jokes and shit canning their wives and, you know, oh, my ex never lets me see the kids and rah, rah, rah. And it's like, okay, I'm out. I'm done. I don't, I don't need the negativity. And that's another thing too as well. Like, I mean, there's enough negativity in the world. There's enough crap that goes on. There's enough thoughts that are going to enter your own head. Filter out the negative stuff. Get people. If you're going to surround yourself, and I think the biggest thing is there, surround yourself with people, but surround yourself with people that are going to be positive, that are going to give you, one, not going to bullshit you, but also two, support you and say, yeah, mate, you're stuffed up. But don't beat yourself up over it. We all stuff up. mate. That's what parenting is. It's it's trial and error. It's an, it's an experiment. Um, and, you know, we all do it and we hopefully come out with the right result, but there's no, and in that sense too, in the sort of scientific thinking of it being an experiment, there's no failure and there's no winning. Like parenting isn't a game that you win or lose. You just do. And, and like I say, you say about my, you know, it's a hell of a story or whatever, but it's no better or worse than anybody else's. It's no more dramatic or, or harder or whatever than yours or, or another parent's. It's just my story. Everybody has their own story. Everybody has their own challenges too. Like, I mean, you know, we, as I said, we conceived our kids quite easily. People go through IVF. People go through miscarriage. People go through stillbirth. People go through terrible troubles just to get pregnant, you know, although, and then they might have a beautiful baby, but then they get to teenage years and, and their kid goes off the rails and, you know, they have huge dramas when the kid's 14, 15 years of age and, and things like that. It's not about saying you won or you lost or this was better or this was worse. It's just your story. Stop trying to compare yourself to other people. Stop trying to say, oh, you know, this was, you know, how it was meant to be or and all that sort of stuff. Just it's it's got to be that, yeah, just really go with the flow, I think. And that's the other thing I'd sort of say is just, yeah, let it sort of wash over you in some ways because, yeah, you, you're not going to fight a wave. Like you can't go out and swim out in the ocean and push a wave back. It just it's going to hit. You can dive under it or you can let it hit you, but that's, they're your only two options. You know, you can't push it back. So, yeah. Brilliant, mate. Look, that's actually probably a good place to to call it. So thank you so much uh, for, you know, sharing your perspective, your story today, Ian. There's lots of amazing insights and some great advice there, mate. Thank you very much and good luck with the rest of your fatherhood journey. And thank you, Stephen. And yeah, as I said, thank you so much for having a connection with us. And it was great to meet you. And hopefully, as I said, we can keep, you know, connecting. And as I said, 
through whether it be multiverse or through your foundation and stuff to uh, keep sharing these stories and these journeys. I'd like to acknowledge the Darawal people as the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is recorded. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>